You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.44, Perfect Machines and Flawed Pilots. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I just can't bear to see the Queen Mantha fight the Game Hulk. I just want them to be friends. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta for just one more episode. <laughs> Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 462 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Minori H and Dano. This podcast would not be possible without your support. This episode releases on Saturday, July 24th. Next week, we cover the finale of Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta. Then, we will wrap this season with an episode looking back at the series as a whole, before taking a short hiatus to rest and prepare for Season 4. Also coming up soon, the podcast's third birthday and our annual pin promotion. Tom has been hard at work getting those pins designed and ordered. We will keep making updates and announcements here on the podcast, but for all the latest MSB news and updates while we are on hiatus, you can also follow us on social media or on Patreon. This week we are covering the 46th and penultimate episode of Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, Vibration, or Baiburation. This episode originally aired on January 24th, 1987. It was written by Endo Akinori and directed by Koase Toshifumi, who also did the storyboards. For our research this week, you will be shocked to hear that I have another installment of Heike Monogatari Breakdown. But first, well, it's time for Radio Free Shangri-La. Okay, next on the list is the scene where Strobe Flanagan wants to use his molecular battering ram to break down the door to Macbeth's antique shop, but then Detective Stryker notices that the door is already slightly ajar. Page 12. Uh, my notes are all out of order. Is that before or after Zabibi analyzes the blood splatter by licking it? I could really use a minute to get into character. Okay, take five, everybody, but don't go anywhere. We need to get this recorded ASAP. You know, I think my favourite thing about our new ship is the recording studio. The acoustics in here are amazing. My favourite part was the limitless supply of Become a Monster soda equivalent beverage substance. Before Tish came back from her meeting with Mr. Timpson and jettisoned all of it. I did that for your own good. Oh yeah? Then why am I so angry at you? Because bouts of uncontrollable rage are a side effect of the drugs in your soda. My favorite thing is how totally soundproof this studio is. You remember back on Shangri-La how we used to, like, hear every single car going by? Or that weird burbling noise from Sludge Lake? Now literally anything 
could be happening on the other side of this door and we would never hear it. But meanwhile, on the other side of that door... This is boarding party to Central Command. We have breached the outer airlock of the Nindra. No signs of resistance. Roger that, boarding party. They must have heard your breaching charges, so sweep the ship carefully and watch out for ambushes. Take any actors you find into custody. Our friends in the International Intern Solidarity Association have plans for them. Ignorant of the approaching danger, the cast of Radio Free Shangri-La continues their tale. Now stand back as the power of my scientific genius reduces this sturdy door to mere atomic debris. Wait, look. It's already ajar. The lock's been forced. Someone beat us here. Let's hurry. And Captain Strobe, keep that molecular Watsit ready. I seriously doubt Alice came alone. Zabibi. I've got a bad feeling about this. Oh, it's pitch black in here. Can anyone find a light switch? As our heroes spread out to investigate the showroom of Macbeth's antique O-Rama, dark storm clouds gather overhead. Perhaps it is merely the result of a crossed wire in the colony's poorly maintained weather control infrastructure. Or perhaps it is destiny itself that unleashes the fury of the heavens on this most climactic night. Ah, oh, I think I found the lights. Good work, Professor. There's a whole rack of horrors back here. Wow, I never knew they made them in so many different colors. The client said the horror we want is classic green with the name Bethy written on it in permanent marker. You see anything like that? Uh... N no. What about you, Professor? It's mostly vases over here. Captain, did you seriously just flick a priceless antique vase? Oh, relax, Vale. I didn't hurt it. Zabibi! Zabibi! The investigators hurry to see what their companion has discovered. But when they arrive... Oh, my heavens! I guess this must be Macbeth. He's been shot twice. No, three times. From the blood, it looks like he fell backward onto the stairs first. Then someone moved him out of the way. They might still be up there. Zabibi. Zabibi says he'll stay behind and try to learn what he can from the body. But the rest of us should go up. I hope you know how to use that ray gun. Just watch me. We've found the actors, sir. They're all gathered in a soundproof recording cabin. Good. Have the interns pump knockout gas through the air vents. We'll take the whole cast without firing a single shot. And now the recap for Vibration. The mass of Kubele mobile suits streaming from Axis toward Kiara is none other than Glemmy's new type core. 
Chara briefly engages with Pudu too, but with Ni and Lance, Haman, and even Judo urging her retreat, she ultimately breaks away and returns to Haman's fleet. The Gundam team return to the Nail Argama to observe and to plan. Patrolling the space around Axis, Pudu too is beginning to break down. Alone inside her cockpit, she accuses an unseen, unknown person of messing with her head. On the moon, Bright has an unexpected meeting. Lena is back, and she's been looked after by none other than Sela Mass. Sela asks Bright if there's been any sign of her brother, and both of them wonder where Char could be and what he might be planning. From his headquarters, Glemmy orders the Musa, a separate asteroid attached to Axis by metal pylons, detached and launched at Haman's forces. His plan is for the asteroid to disperse Haman's superior force, then mop up afterwards with the New Type Corps. Judo insists that they mount an attack against the New Type Corps before the Musa hits. So over Beach's objections, and without even taking time to resupply, Judo, L, and Rue launch mobile suits and charge toward Axis. If it remains on its current heading, the Musa will plow through Haman's fleet and crash into Core 3. Ships of the fleet fire on the asteroid, attempting to change its trajectory only to be shot down themselves. Haman gives the order for them to scatter. The mobile suits of the opposing forces meet once again. Rakan has to urge Purutu on. She still feels unwell from the unknown person messing with her head, but he is able to use her to set a trap for Kiara. Lance sacrifices himself, blocking the beam fire meant for Kiara so that Ni can help her escape. When Rakan tries to chase them, Judo intervenes. While the two of them fight with sabers, missiles, and beams, Pudu too is frozen. LP Pudu appears to block her path, telling her not to interfere with Judo, that he isn't her enemy and she can get out of her mobile suit and leave the war behind. I won't let you confuse me, Pudu too yells, but it is too late for her to help Rakan. Hedged in by missiles, he charges at Judo, swinging his beam saber wildly. With two neat slashes, Judo cuts the Dovin Wolf into quarters and Rakan is killed in the ensuing explosion. Axis's defensive line is collapsing. Judo, Rue, and L easily fly through, and when Judo decides to enter the asteroid to look for Pudu 2, Rue and L follow. Reaching its target, the Musa strikes only a glancing blow against one of the protruding parts of Core 3. Furious at the plan's failure, and without a thought for the death and destruction it will cause, Glemmy orders Axis rammed into the Core 3 colony. Once Haman sees what Glemmy has done, she orders commandos to infiltrate Axis to try to change its course. Pudu too is acting strangely. She quit the field and brought her mobile suit to stand outside Glemmy's command center in the heart of Axis. Grabbing her arms, Glemmy orders her to pull herself together LP Pudu can't be hurting her. LP Pudu is dead. It's the Gundam that's confusing her. And if she gives him her power, they can defeat the Gundam and she won't feel sick anymore. Glemmy gets into the Queen Mantha, pulling Pudu 2 onto his lap. 
and they take off to look for the Gundam team. Rue finds them first. On Glemmy's orders, Purutu attacks, bits shooting up and down the city streets, cutting whole buildings in half. After knocking Rue's mobile suit to the ground, Purutu blinds her enemy with a beam that melts off the suit's monitor, then immobilizes it with a shot to the leg. Before she can finish Rue off, Elle arrives, but no matter how she ducks and dodges, Elle cannot outfight Purutu and the Queen Mantha. In moments, she is also immobilized. But before Purutu can deliver the coup de grace, she hears judo in her head. She rushes out of her cockpit and stands between judo and Glemmy as they argue. Glemmy has a cause for which he is prepared to do anything, and he dismisses judo as a mere soldier, fighting because of the circumstances but with no real goal beyond survival. For his part, Judo is furious at the self-righteous egotism of Glemmy and his ilk. That with the Earth polluted and the space colonies falling apart, all they care about is who is in power. He repeats his old refrain to Pudu too. She doesn't have to be Glemmy's puppet. Glemmy grabs her by the hair, attempting to force her back into the Queen Mantha and back to fighting. Everyone leave me alone, she screams the emotion making her mobile suit's beams flare all around her. After that moment of release, she decides to go to Judo, knowing that he will help her. Glemmy tries to follow her and is caught out in the open. Rue takes the shot and kills Glemmy with a blast from her beam rifle. Axis collides with Core 3, its pointed spire tearing a massive gash in the colony. On the bridge of the Nail Argama, everyone waits with bated breath, watching for their friends, and sighs and cheers break out when Judo makes contact. It was a near thing, but he, El, Rue, and Purutu are all safe and on their way back to the ship. There's a persistent rumor about Double Zeta, and one that I think is probably true, that in original plans for this show, Char was supposed to show up, and that uh, much of the role that Char would have played in Double Zeta had he shown up ended up being transferred onto Glemmy, and that's part of the reason why the Glemmy character changed so abruptly early on in the show. The theory is that the next Gundam project was greenlit during the process of making Double Zeta, and a decision was made at the highest possible levels that Char needed to be sort of reserved for that next project and would not be making an appearance in this show. So now we get this scene between uh, Bright and Sela sort of cleaning up loose ends and talking about Char as a kind of belated acknowledgement of the weirdness of his absence. This scene absolutely feels like it is a setup for whatever happens next. It is, I believe, one of the first acknowledgements that in-universe Char is still believed to be alive. We discussed at the end of Zeta that we see the Hyakushiki, his Hyakushiki, empty, uh, which implies he didn't die inside it, he got away somehow. 
But this is the first time we've had like an in-universe blatantly stated, we're pretty sure (laughs) Char is still alive. And this is classic Char behavior. I mean, if you think back to the end of First Gundam, Char also sort of goes missing and his survival is uncertain, at least in the TV version, after he uh, bazookas Kaecilia. In the movie version, there's an extra scene added that shows some of the Xeon spaceships fleeing from Abawaku. And in that scene, you can see the silhouette of somebody who looks like Char uh, in one of the windows, implying his survival. So I think that's roughly equivalent to the empty Hyakushiki at the end of Zeta. This is just what Char does. He, he disappears at the end of things. Beyond simply establishing that Char is out there somewhere, is definitely planning something, is definitely watching what's happening and taking all of that into account in his own plans. There were two other parts of the scene that I really liked. One is that through the entire conversation, Lena says almost nothing. She greets Bright, she explains that Sayla's been looking after her, and after that she is silent. But she's listening. They make a point of showing her watching Bright and Sayla talk, and she is thinking about and processing what they're saying and the implications of it. The other part is that Sayla's description of Char is basically generic Gundam villain <laughs> at this point. Well, and and it the way she phrases it, she could as easily be talking about Glemmy or Haman. Hmm. He feels he has to obey this cosmic will. Basically that he believes he's destined, he believes he's fated to do these things. And we've seen that most of these Gundam villains have this idea of grandeur, right? That their cause is so important and that they have to do the things that they do for this cause. And then she also describes her brother as ambitious and delusional, (laughs) which is more or less, to my mind, exactly the situation for Glemmy and Haman. I mean, it makes him sound a bit like a self-righteous egotist, which is what Judo calls Glemmy later in the episode. Though, maybe I'm projecting a little bit of my memories of Quattro onto this description of him by Sela, but he seems so much more unwilling. Like, he doesn't want to have this terrible destiny. He's not eager for it the way a Glemmy or a Haman or a Soroko is. He feels compelled by this, this destiny this cosmic will. His reluctance might make him more likable, but if in the end he does all of the same things, what does it matter? Well, sure. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yes, I I agree with that. Um, I do think a really essential part of his character is that he did sort of half-heartedly try to escape it. He did try to become somebody else, a mere lieutenant with no great destiny hanging over him. He tried to give up the name of Shar Aznable and everything that represented, and then he just found that he couldn't for one reason or another. And I, I don't think that's exculpatory or admirable in any way, but it is a, a different sort of characterization. And it wouldn't be Gundam if the one bit that they say about new types wasn't confusing. <laughs> because Sela says it would be sad if new types were just a concept. 
And I've spent quite a bit of time trying to parse what exactly she means by that, because we know new types are real. They're not merely conceptual. We know people who are new types. However, I think she's getting at the sort of like never clearly defined philosophical underpinnings from, you know, her father, from her brother, the idea of a new type society, the idea of humanity evolved to some new stage, not individuals, but the, the entirety of the human race. And that's similar to what we talked about at the end of First Gundam when Shar and Amuro have that very tense, very philosophical discussion when they meet in Abawaku. And it seems at first as though Shar wants to recruit Amuro and then decides that he has to eliminate him. The idea that Shar is looking forward to a new era, an era of new types, not merely an era in which new types occur. And of course, Sela does mention that he's waiting for a new era. But her perspective is that if humanity is going to evolve, if humanity is going to move to this next stage, it's not something that any person can bring about. That it's a beautiful concept, but it's not something that can be forced or made. But then that's the delusion, perhaps, that Shar thinks or believes that humanity can be dragged kicking and screaming into this new era. Uh, yeah, I think that's what she's getting at. And that she'd rather he died than go through with it. I do think there's a gap between the idea of new types, new types as a concept that Sela is getting at, and the characters we have met who are called new types. Because again and again, we've come up against the question, what is a new type? What does that actually mean? And I think the show has made it pretty clear that most of the people talking about new type-ism, new types, don't really know. So while it's true that we've met, quote, new types, we've met psychics with superhuman piloting abilities. We've met espers. And perhaps those are new types. Or perhaps there's some gap between those two ideas. Is Lala a new type? Maybe. Is the ability to control a psychomu with your mind, is that what makes you a new type? Oh, I was, else? I was going to argue that it's since her death, since her like mm. merging with space and time. Ah, I see. Not was Lala a new type, but is Lala a new type? Exactly. Hmm, perhaps. This kind of gets into the question about cyber new types, which is really interesting to me because we call them cyber new types. And I think calling them cyber new types changes the expectations we have for them. We think of them as new types created by science. But in the Japanese, they're not called cyber new types. They're called enhanced humans, which is a very different characterization. They're psychics, or they're, they're humans, and they've developed these psychic abilities that make them like new types. But are they the same thing? Is it two roads to get to the same place, or is it two roads that diverged in the forest? I think cyber new types have always represented the danger of trying to force humanity's development along those kinds of lines. Cyber new types, as characters in the show, have always been there as the answer to why Char's plan is so dangerous and why mm. he shouldn't be allowed to do it. And he, even in Zeta, had a conversation with Camille about the risks and challenges of accelerating development, of forcing people to become new types. 
But I also think that cyber new types stand for the dangers of seeing in new typism only those abilities that are useful for the army, for the state, for the powers that be, of ignoring that capacity for understanding and community and instead focusing only on the piloting abilities, the ability to create a barrier, the ability to anticipate where things are going to move before they do. Well, it comes back to what parallels there are between new typism and enlightenment, new typism and, and various spiritual practices. Somebody can tell you all kinds of practical reasons to meditate. Oh, you'll feel calmer. Oh, this. Oh, that. You'll be more creative. You'll sleep better. Da 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 da. Better concentration. But that's all about utility. And like, yes, you can meditate for those reasons, and it's very effective for some people for that. But meditation as a spiritual practice is not a means to an end. Meditation might lead a person to enlightenment. Having a great teacher might help them do that. But it's about process, not about targeting and chasing toward a goal. You cannot make a person enlightened. You cannot drag them to enlightenment. They will reach it or not. It's not something that can be forced. When we talk about the cycle of life and death and rebirth in Buddhism, the goal, enlightenment, is the breaking of the cycle, the escape from the cycle. But in the cycle, there are lots of different stages, different experiences. And being a human is pretty good. Being human is arguably the best because it gives you the best shot at enlightenment. But you could also be reborn and live as a god. And you would have the, the powers of a god, the pleasures of a god, the life of a god. But that too is finite. It might last an extremely long time, you know, an unimaginably long time by our scale. But that too must end. And the suffering that you'll experience at the end of that is magnified by the, the pleasure and the power that you've experienced in that life. And in a way, it feels like the idea of new type, the concept of new type, is sort of like enlightenment. It's something special and beyond and outside of the cycle. But in the pursuit of that, you might find yourself in a position where you have the powers of a god. And with that comes necessarily an equal share of misery. And the idea that new types don't simply represent humanity breaking a cycle, but the cycle itself is, at least as far as Quattro envisions it, the cycle of violence. He believes that if humans can become new types, it will break the cycle of war and destruction. And therefore, any amount of war and destruction is justified if it can break that cycle. I don't want to get into Glemmy too much yet, but Glemmy also makes the point that to him, as long as he is fighting for a worthy cause, any and all actions are justified. What? I don't know how I can respond to that without getting into Glemmy. Oh, okay. I well, think Glemmy is the natural transition out of this, from one delusional, ambitious blonde to another. Well, if we happened upon a transition to Glemmy, maybe we should take it. Apart from his big, sweeping, philosophical argument with Judo, there were a couple of things about him that stood out to me in this episode. The first thing actually connects very neatly to our conversation about new types and new typism, because we've known for some time that Glemmy is developing a new type core. 
who we now actually see right. on the and battlefield. Who, and who maybe all of them are Pudu clones? Yeah, it's interesting. We only see one and it's not super clear. Right. The way she's depicted puts it in what I would call the zone of ambiguity. It's close enough that if you wanted to believe that they were all Pudu body doubles, then you could. And uh, if you wanted to believe otherwise, then I think there's enough variance there for that as well. Unfortunately, even though she has a voiced line, the voice actor is not credited for this role. So I can't tell you whether it's the same voice as LP Puru and Puru 2 or not. Despite the fact that he's put a whole lot of time, money, planning, effort into the creation of this new type core, never has it been more clear than in this episode that he understands nothing. <laughs> We've never had an indication that he has any new type ability himself. We still don't. You're wondering about that? You think? I, I think there might have been like one time when somebody heard his voice at a distance or something. There might have been some like light, very light new type hinting that never got followed up on. But in a show that tends to be very explicit about who's a new type and who isn't, it's safe to say that if Glemmy is a new type, he's an incredibly weak one who has never developed into it. If I were to pick one moment to demonstrate how little Glemmy understands, what a joke he is. It's when Pudu 2 tells him that Pudu is trying to get her to stop fighting, and he says, what are you talking about? LP Pudu is dead. <laughs> him dying is sort of the cherry on the sundae of what a joke he is, what a joke this whole endeavor was that he plotted for years and tortured all these children, and for what? He manages to kill a whole bunch of people, only to die himself. All for the satisfaction of his own ego. Right. He has this speech that he gives about how he has chosen this hard, harsh life for himself. And so, like, it feels very much like the speech you would get from an 18-year-old. Um, Is he 18? 18 or 19, okay. something in there. Because he has a thing about... I have no regrets. And I'm like, of course you have no regrets. You're 20. You're a child, yeah. <laughs> you haven't had time to regret the monstrous things you've done. And I should say, it's not the speech that I would expect from every 18 or 19-year-old, even every like overprivileged 18 or 19-year-old princeling. But he is a creepy neo-fascist, so this is all very much on brand for him. This emphasis on the like harshness of life and how we need a strong leader willing to do what it takes. The speech we so often get from villains and from good guys turned villains, and I think the sort of speech we would get from someone like Haman is, oh, these things I'm doing are regrettable but necessary. To have Glemmy say, I regret nothing, is pretty intense. He has no hesitation in doing monstrous, callous things. Using the Musa as a weapon, using Axis as a weapon, when clearly they haven't had time to evacuate the portions of Axis that are going to hit Core 3. Core 3 is completely destroyed. Presumably millions of people die in this attack. Countless more are rendered homeless and refugees. Because as far as Glemmy is concerned, 
Those people, like Judo, are just garbage. He doesn't care about them, he doesn't want them in his sight. Their suffering means nothing to him. Similarly, the mass destruction of the mobile suit fight inside Axis itself, when he fights Rue and L and later Judo, there is no concern for the fact that huge buildings are being torn in half by beam fire. Again, no hesitation, no remorse, no second thoughts. There is a shot of the bridge of the Nail Argama after they have seen the Musa sort of jettisoned and on its way towards Core 3. And everybody's making different faces. Beach's face is sort of contorted into a grimace or a frown. L looks shocked and wide-eyed. As Rue is explaining the strategy behind this, how it's going to break up Haman's forces, and so the fact that the force is stronger than Glemmy's won't matter so much, and this and that and the other, she seems almost admiring. And Judo wants to rush out there, and looking at all of the times that Judo inserts himself into other people's fights in this episode, I realized something, and it's that Judo is still trying to save a whole bunch of individual people, Haman included. Because there is absolutely no reason to get involved in the fight between Glemmy and Haman before one of them has taken out one of the others. I mean, maybe if you think you can save a bunch of civilian life on Core 3 or Axis, but Judo doesn't go try to reroute the Musa away from Core 3. When he leaves, he goes to Axis, he goes to fight Glemmy. Because on some level, I think he wants one more crack at Haman to try and convince her not to do this. He gets in the middle of one of Kiara's fights, he gets in the middle of Pudutu's fights, he keeps trying to get them to leave the field. And not only is he putting himself in danger, he's putting them in danger, distracting them in the middle of combat, but he he's still trying to save these individual people from the war, from themselves. <laughs> And I don't know that he goes to Axis to take Glemmy out. I don't know if that's really his intention when he leaves the Argama. Ultimately, he's not even the one who kills Glemmy. And it's only at the end, after their confrontation, after Glemmy makes it so abundantly clear that he cannot be saved, that there is no changing this kid's mind, that they finally finish him off. I don't know what it is about Gundam. They are masters of the dramatic kiss-off. Every time I think of that scene between Mirai and her ex-fiance, I smile. When she <laughs> simply so drifts good. away. And this one, with Rue being the one to take out Glemmy. Yeah. Oh my with god. With her single tear, I will remember that you loved me. And his shock that he just tried to kill her, and yet... She is killing him? How dare she? She's just a peasant. He can't believe it. It's so beautifully handled. I love the bit where he's standing on the, like, collarbone, I guess, of the Queen Mantha. And, you know, he's saying something to Judo, and the frame freezes. And we switch to seeing him through the targeting computer of the Zeta. And the way he just floats a little bit as he's about to be disintegrated. Ah, uh, really, really well done. 
I did think it was a little regrettable that we hadn't been following that through line of uh, Rue and Glemmy's relationship in, say, the latter half of the show, because we definitely had it early on, but in a way it feels a little bit like we lost it, and so Rue's level of emotionality here is maybe a little unearned. Yeah. It's so good, I forgive it. I forgive it everything. Eat it, Glemmy. I see this argument between Glemmy and Judo as encapsulating the writer's perspective on young people in society, with Glemmy being society, capital S, and Pudu, too, being a sort of average young person, and Judo presenting this alternate path. Because what's he talking about? He's talking about rejecting being told what to do, rejecting orders, leaders, outside control. Look at the people in charge and who they blame. You know, Glemmy tries to get Pudu 2 to believe the enemy is the one who puts you in shackles. They're going to direct your anger and direct your energy at their own enemies because they don't really care about you. Individuals who are miserable and suffering want a cure for that, and leaders promise one if you support their agenda, and they demand your power in exchange. And it's literal here. Glemmy demands Pudu's power and says that if she does what he says, she won't be in pain anymore. He also says, with our powers combined, right, your power and mine. But what power is he contributing to this? Right. It's entirely her power. And his demands are backed by force, by violence, in the way a lot of demands of the government are, again, writ small here. He grabs her by the hair, he grabs her by the arm, he manhandles her into the cockpit, he pulls her into his lap. And she loses herself at times. She becomes this kind of mindless and empty puppet. And he doesn't even bother to deny that he's using her. For him, the ends justify the means. He has a great cause that he has to fight for. And he belittles Judo basically for lacking a clear ideology, which adults, established politicians, making fun of rebellious youth for not having any coherence. Like, oh, you're just angry and rebellious for no reason. You don't actually have a cause. You don't understand justice. I mean, it's like that bit in Rebel Without a Cause. What are you rebelling against? What do you got? And Judo has trouble responding to this. He can't clearly articulate yet why he fights against Glemmy. And He's uncomfortable about that. But when Camille speaks to him, Camille tells him, trust your intuition. Trust that your anger and frustration are legitimate and are the proper reactions to this unfair, messed up world. And this is something we see every day when somebody expresses their anger or frustration with something in the world. It's very common uh, for reactionaries or just people who want to uphold the status quo to come back and say, "Okay, well, if everything's so bad, what's your perfect, flawless, utopian society idea? And you don't need to have one. Sometimes it's enough to just know that bad things are bad and to want to end them. I'm really interested in what you were saying about the way Glemmy's relationship with Pudu 2 represents the way capital S society abuses and exploits young people, because I think that connects to uh, her name. We talked many episodes ago about the manga child pornography magazine 
El People and how that name seems pretty likely to have been the basis for LP Pudu's name and therefore for Pudu 2 and the whole character design, really. And I think through the Stampa Haloi Tiger Bomb episodes and in other places, Double Zeta has worked to draw a line between the sexual abuse of young people and the every other kind of abuse of young people. That these are different flavors of the same exploitation. And that Glemmy's pursuit of his own ideological satisfaction, of his own power and his own glory, are very much the same thing. And that after having spent time, money, effort to shape Purutu into what he wanted and needed, to shape her into a useful tool, he feels that he owns her. He tells her explicitly, you're part of me. She's not a separate entity. He created her. How can she possibly rebel against him? She's not her own person with her own wants and desires. She is merely an expression of his intentions for her. And of course, when he says, it's the enemy who is putting you in shackles, either the man has no sense of irony whatsoever, or the strongest sense of irony in the universe, it's hard to tell. But this feels like classic projection. I mean, It's a blatant manipulation. I think he knows <laughs> that that's not true, but... He knows that he is the one putting her in shackles. Certainly he knows that she is shackled and she doesn't like it. There is a repeat of what I now think of as a classic Gundam moment, which is the parade of ghosts. <laughs> Although in this case, uh, not so many ghost ghosts, not as many people who have died. Because Camille makes an appearance, not dead. Fa makes an appearance, not dead. Lena makes an appearance, not dead. We also see Emery and Rosara. Neither of whom say anything. Yet the support that these new types and new type ghosts, question mark, give Judo is not martial. Previously, that energy became an extra big beam that destroyed the enemy or a shield that blocked the enemy. Here, it's just reassuring Judo about the strength of his convictions, <laughs> which, nice twist. I mean, not that Judo doesn't use his powers to make a shield and block some powerful attacks. I mean, he does totally do that. But it's a, an evolution or even a response against the writing from previous series, which, again, turned this power, this ability, this insight into a kind of utilitarian weapon rather than a means for furthering human understanding. It is kind of funny how similar this is to when Camille made his final attack on Sirocco with the army of ghost ladies coming to defend him, especially since it was written by the same person. Ghost ladies and one dude. That is true, and also what happened in Zeta, because Katz was there. <laughs> There's a pattern. There's a pattern here. Also, Endo just couldn't help himself. This is a total tangent, and we'll go back to the philosophical discussion in a second. But Endo just couldn't help himself. He did have to have somebody jump in front of a beam and die in a tragically heroic sacrifice. But it was Lance for Kiara. That's true. It was a man, and that doesn't happen very often. I see Judo's response to Glemmy as casting this debate in terms of 
egotism versus humility and glory versus survival. Because Judo listens to Glemmy's rant and Judo comes back and he says, you are not special. Your blood, your highly esteemed Zabi blood is just one part out of billions. And the earth is dying. Our colonies are falling apart. And you're out here wasting blood and treasure over some trivial nonsense about which flavor of despot belongs on a throne that shouldn't exist at all. You're fighting over the right to be the captain of this sinking ship, to be the most esteemed, the most honored corpse at the end. Is that what this is all about for you? Oh yeah, it's clear he thinks Glemmy's whole deal is a bunch of petty And Judo gets very explicit here. The earth is polluted and the colonies are crumbling. That these are not really two problems. These are the same problem together. That the colonies crumbling stands in for the collapse of the Earth's ecosystem. That the colonies crumbling in the universal century is the same as our own world becoming uninhabitable in real time. That this obsession with the future and with personal glory and with these big impressive achievements that Glemmy is always going for is just a waste of resources that could be and should be spent on the much more humble, much less exciting work of sustaining and preserving and rebuilding. He calls them the mistakes caused by individual desires. And although Glemmy laughs in his face over this, Judo has a sense of representing a broader interest right? The people as this huge amorphous mass of humanity rather than the zombies as the <laughs> couple of drops in the ocean of humanity. Of particular significance when we're thinking of Judo and Glemmy as these two counterpoints, these two options, and Pudutu caught in the middle, is that Judo doesn't save Pudutu. Not entirely. He presents her with an option, he gets her to question what's happening, but Pudu saves herself. And to some degree, LP Pudu saves Pudu too. Right, well, <laughs> saves herself what remains. The voice that is causing the most confusion and difficulty for Pudu too is not Judo's, it's LP Pudu's. Caught between the two sides, feeling torn. She doesn't rush straight to Judo. She says, everyone get away from me. Leave me alone. Then she decides, okay, I'm out. I'm getting away from Glemmy. Judo will help me. But even after she does that, she still feels drawn to Glemmy. When he gets vaporized, she cries out for him, reaches towards him, and falls off the hand of the double zeta. That feels like a classic abused child response to the loss of the only person who's ever looked after them, really. I mean, that's really part of what makes it all so difficult. We are hardwired to form these attachments with our caregivers, even when they're not giving us very good care. And Glemmy has certainly done everything possible to encourage Puru to depend on him, to feel those feelings towards him. And I think it's important to see this speech from Judo here in the penultimate episode as representing the synthesis of all of his experiences. He has seen a lot. He had a difficult upbringing on Shangri-La. 
and then his adventures since then have only been more dangerous. And in that time, he's seen a big portion of the Earth's sphere. He's encountered people in the highest and the lowest positions, and he has developed this theory about what the world's problems are and what needs to be done about them. And it represents a through line throughout the whole show from decaying, decrepit Shangri-La to the wasteland deserts of Africa to the forests of Europe that have been carefully reseeded for the benefit of a very small portion of the population to Beach Mansion. In space, they've seen poor people on the moon. They've seen destroyed colonies drifting after the One Year War. I feel like more than any of the other protagonists, Judo has a really big picture view of the Universal Century. And he doesn't yet know how to fix it, but he does have a very clear picture of the problem. And a constant little pilot light of anger and frustration that all of these powerful people, all of these people with means and vision, are so single-mindedly focused on amassing power that they cause untold destruction and suffering in their wake, all while making the real problems, the possibly the end of the human race style problems, worse. And part of the reason this confrontation between Judo and Glemmy hits so hard is because of everything they've done to set Glemmy up as a dark mirror to Judo. I haven't talked as much this season about the parallel storytelling thing, but Glemmy and Judo are both defined by their relationships with these younger women, with the Purus, with Lena. And Judo's big brotherly relationship finds its inverse, its dark mirror, in the way that Glemmy manipulates, exploits, and abuses them. And that comes through so strongly in this episode, in the bit where Glemmy is in the Queen Mantha with Pudu and has her sitting on his lap while they fight, which is exactly what LP Pudu and Judo used to do before she died. And if we think back to the Bawu, although it rarely appeared in the show, the Bawu is capable of splitting into multiple parts, just like the Double Zeta does. But with the Bawu, the separate part is still controlled by the one pilot. It reflects Glemmy's egotism, his uh, centralization of control. Whereas for Judo, the Double Zeta really is, uh, when it splits up, it's piloted by his friends. It's a emblem of the unity of their purpose and their spirit and the community that they have formed. And when it combines to become the double Zeta and all the parts come together to become more powerful than they were apart, that really is Judo embodying everyone's will, carrying it into battle. And here in this final confrontation with Glemmy, it's not Judo who ultimately defeats him. Judo is only part of the team that creates the opportunity. Would it have been possible without Rue? Probably not. Would Rue have survived long enough to do that without El there to distract Pudu and Glemmy in a key moment? Probably not. It was only all of them together that made it possible. We now return to the late Heian era in Japan, and the tale of the Heike, already in progress. 
We ended last week with a Tyra puppet on the imperial throne, and Mochihito, the prince whose face foretold his imperial destiny, fleeing the capital to take refuge in the nearby Midera temple. Midera was already one of the largest and most important temples in Japan at the time. Mochihito's decision to flee there makes sense on a purely practical level. First, it was pretty close by. Yes, he had to travel through rough, mountainous terrain to get there, but it was still only a day's journey from his mansion. It was also near the country villa where the recently uncovered plot against the Taira had been planned, and so perhaps Mochihito had reason to believe that the whole region harbored anti-Taira sentiments. And it had strong defenses. Like most large temples in the late Heian era, Midera maintained a small army of warrior monks. Some of these men would have been very sincere in their religiosity, but a lot of them were what are called lay monks. And many of these men would have been former thieves, brigands, bandits, pirates, and so on. Little different from the soldiers in any other army of the day. But there was also historical significance to Mochihito's choice. Midera had been founded by the emperor Tenmu some six centuries before Mochihito's day. In history, Tenmu is remembered as a great and deeply pious emperor who oversaw major reforms, centralized control of the military, and constructed many new forts and temples. But take all of that with a grain of salt, because our major sources for Tenmu's era are two histories, the Nihon Shoki and the Kojiki, and Tenmu commissioned both of them. So. But before all the reforms and the commissioning of histories, Tenmu had to come to power. He was born in 631, the younger son of the Emperor Jomei and the Empress Kogyoku. Now in this era, it was expected that an emperor would have multiple wives, consorts, and lovers. Jomei did, and Tenmu had numerous siblings and half-siblings. This was all before the Fujiwara clan established their stranglehold on the court. The power of the imperial family was less secure in general, internal conflicts were more common than they would be through much of the Heian period, and the emperors relied heavily on political, financial, and military support from their maternal relatives. Thus, succession to the throne in this era had less to do with birth order and more to do with who had the most powerful mom. Now, as I said, Tenmu was the younger son of the Emperor Jomei and the Empress Kogyoku. Kogyoku herself is a fascinating figure, and so I have to take a brief digression from this digression to talk about her, because it's just too good of a story not to share. We don't call her Empress Kogyoku simply because she was married to the Emperor. She was a member of the Imperial clan herself, and when Jomei died in 642, she took the throne as Empress Regnant. At that time, the imperial court was dominated by the powerful Soga clan. You can think of the Soga as predecessors to the Fujiwara regents. It was less formalized, but they married their daughters into the imperial family, they used the emperors and empresses as figureheads, and they handled much of the actual governing themselves, and for their own benefit. But perhaps they pushed things a little too far. Early on in Empress Kogyoku's reign, her eldest son, and Tenmu's elder brother, who at the time was known as Naka no Oe, hatched a plot to free the imperial clan from Soga influence. 
Together with his friends, the young prince bribed a squad of palace guards to attack the head of the Soga clan in the middle of an important imperial ceremony. When the bribed guards hesitated, too afraid to attack the powerful minister, the prince Nakanooe did the job himself while his imperial mother watched. In the aftermath, the remaining Soga, realizing that they had lost, set fire to their own mansion, killing themselves and destroying countless imperial treasures that had somehow wound up in their possession. Feeling shamed by all of this, or perhaps spiritually polluted by the murder carried out in her presence, the Empress Kogyoku abdicated, and her brother ascended as emperor. But he died nine years later, and she returned to the throne to rule for a further six years until her death. At that point, the prince Nakanooe, the same one who had launched the coup and destroyed the Soga, finally took the throne himself, and he took the imperial name Tenji. Interestingly, his closest ally during the coup was an aristocrat named Nakatomi no Kamatari. Kamatari then became one of the leading architects of the Taika reforms, which reorganized the whole of Japan's society into the shape that it would hold for much of the Heian era. Late in Kamatari's life, his old friend, the Emperor Tenji, heaped honors upon him. One of those honors was a new surname, and thus, quite ironically, the same Kamatari who had been instrumental in freeing the imperial family from Soga clan domination became the founder of the Fujiwara clan. But let's get back to our original digression. What was the historical significance for Mochihito in fleeing to Midera, the temple founded by Tenji's little brother, Tenmu? Well, Tenji lived to be around 45 or 46, and he had at least 14 children but none of their mothers were very powerful. Worse, Tenji's favorite son was born from a particularly low-ranking lady at court, the daughter of some minor landlord out in the provinces. But Tenji was insistent, and so when he died, this son became the next emperor. Tenmu, the new emperor's uncle, wasted no time. He immediately gathered an army, marched on the capital, and crushed his nephew's anemic forces in a single battle. The young emperor killed himself, and Tenmu took the throne. Presumably, then, this was the historical model that Mochihito himself hoped to follow. He, too, was an imperial uncle, in the process of rebelling against his recently enthroned nephew. At Midera, the monks were eager to join the prince's cause. They had no love for the Taira, but the forces of one temple would not be enough to resist the wrath of Kiyomori. They dispatched swift couriers carrying urgent appeals to the other major temples in the area, Mount Hiei and Kofukuji, begging them to join in common cause against the Taira. The monks of Mount Hiei refused. They had long been rivals of Miidera, and they took personal insult from Mochihito's decision to go there first. And if that weren't enough, Kiyomori hastily showered the Hiei monks with gifts to ensure their loyalty. But Kofukuji was a different matter entirely. This latter temple, down south in the old capital Nara, had long been affiliated with the Fujiwara clan. Not only had Kiyomori displaced the Fujiwara in power, but in his most recent round of purges, he had exiled the Fujiwara regent. 
This was a literally unprecedented slight. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And it must have left the Kofukuji monks absolutely fuming. So they gathered their forces and prepared to go to the prince's aid. But with the promised help still distant and a Tyra force some 20,000 strong mustering just a few miles away, the prince, his old advisor Minamoto no Yorimasa, and his new monk allies decided to flee for Kofukuji. They made it as far as the Uji River, nine miles or 15 kilometers south of Midera, before the exhausted prince collapsed and was taken to the nearby Byodoin temple to rest. There the vanguard of the Taira pursuit force caught up, and battle commenced with Mochihito's vastly outnumbered forces defending a narrow bridge over the Uji River. The battle itself was the stuff of legends. Think warrior monks blocking arrows in midair with their halberds, leaping over each other to get into the fray, killing 20 men and then immediately tearing off their armor to start calling the name of the Buddha while the battle still raged around them. But during the battle, a small force of Taira horsemen managed to ford the river. They maneuvered around the main force of monks at the bridge and drove straight for the guards holding Byodoin itself. Old Yorimasa, more than 70 years old at this point, himself commanded the defense, but he soon realized it was hopeless. Prince Mochihito, along with a small escort, slipped out the back. Soon Yorimasa took an arrow through the knee. He tried to fall back to the temple sanctuary, but the enemy surged after him. His son, Kanetsuna, led a countercharge to buy time, but he was dragged from his horse and cut down. One by one, Yorimasa's sons and retainers fell. Inside the temple, with Tyra forces battering down the door, the old man composed one final poem and then fell on his sword. Once long ago, he had won fame and favor when his poetry delighted the emperor. And once, when the palace was troubled by the cry of a monstrous chimera creature called the Nue, Yorimasa was the only archer mighty enough to shoot it down. But nothing on this earth can last. His life and his line ended at Byodoin. Tyra riders soon caught the fleeing prince's entourage and killed them all in a hail of arrows. The prince tumbled from his saddle, a long arrow protruding from his side. His body and head would return to the capital, separately. His rebellion, like those raised in the Hogan and Heiji eras, was over in a matter of days. Now Kiyomori, Increasingly vengeful in his old age, and with no one left to restrain him, dispatched a battalion to punish Midera. His troops overcame the monks defending the temple, and burned it to the ground. The senior monks who survived were dismissed from their posts, and those of the middle ranks were banished. So, the rebellion is over now, right? The rebellion is over now, right? It must have seemed so to the Tyra, until a breathless courier arrived at court with a message from one of their allies in the province of Sagami. Sagami bordered Izu, where the young Minamoto exile Yoritomo lived under the watchful eye of the Hojo clan. The Hojo, you may recall, were a cadet branch of the Taira, and Yoritomo was the eldest surviving son of the former Minamoto leader, Yoshitomo. But now something had gone wrong. Yoritomo was openly gathering soldiers, and the Hojo, apparently acting on Yoritomo's orders, had already launched a sneak attack on Izu province's Taira governor and killed him. What convinced the Hojo to switch sides? 
and swear fealty to the man who had been their prisoner? Perhaps they agreed that Kiyomori had gone too far. Perhaps they resented the way their wealthy cousins in the capital hoarded all the riches of the empire. But perhaps the most important factor was that Yoritomo's chief jailer, the senior Hojo Lord Tokimasa, had just become his father-in-law. This wasn't even the first time Yoritomo had escaped imprisonment by seducing a jailer's daughter, although the first time he had been forced to flee from the girl's enraged father. In fact, that was how he ended up living at Tokimasa's house. Tokimasa, too, was not thrilled when this young exile started doing the Heian-era equivalent of making eyes at his daughter. We are told that he opposed the match, but Tokimasa's daughter, Masako, was interested in this young rebel, and it seems that Tokimasa came around to the idea before too long. In fact, if that wasn't enough drama, that Taira governor, the one Tokimasa ambushed and assassinated, well, he had been Masako's original fiancé. Still, despite this deft romantic maneuvering, Yoritomo and his new in-laws struggled to put together a meaningful force. The Eastern warrior clans were reluctant to stick their necks out for the young exile. Even the other branches of his own Minamoto clan hesitated. And really, why should they accept as their leader a man whose main qualification for the job was that he happened to be the son of the guy who had led them all to disaster 20 years prior? Yoritomo managed to scrape together a force of 300 soldiers, but Taira loyalists in the area easily gathered ten times that number and set out to crush him. He was defeated at the Battle of Ishibashiyama. He only escaped capture and certain execution by hiding inside a hollow tree trunk, and then fled alone into the mountains. Yoritomo's rebellion seemed over even before it began, much like every other uprising against the Taira. But Kiyomori never reacted when he could overreact. He had been generous enough to spare Yoritomo's life once before, and he was not going to make that mistake again. So he dispatched Koremori, his 23-year-old grandson, along with an army 30,000 strong to hunt down the rebel Yoritomo and put a permanent end to his uprising. In our comparison of the tale of the Heike to Zeta and Double Zeta, this now brings us up to that point in the latter half of Zeta where Eiyug is in desperate straits, and the exiles from Axis Zeon finally enter the picture. The old grandee Yorimasa, like Blex, is dead. The forces he gathered ultimately proved too weak to defeat the government troops on their own, and their base, whether at Midera or Amman on the moon, has been destroyed. Meanwhile, hunted by government forces as a renegade, Yoritomo and his agents traveled in secret through the eastern provinces, meeting up with old allies and trying to convince them to join his cause. I imagine Haman Karn's agents must have infiltrated the Earth Sphere and made overtures to all the old Zeon hardliners like Rommel or Sato in much the same way. After all, her position as putative successor to the Zabi legacy and ruler of all Zeon was no more certain than Yoritomo's claim to the Minamoto. We can only guess at the kinds of promises she must have made to secure their loyalties. But it is here, with the rebel prince dead, 
Midera reduced to ashes, and Yoritomo on the run, that I leave you for today. And next week, we will finally meet the Glimmy Toto of the Tale of the Heike. Today we witness the end of Glemi Toto, and with him, Rakan Dakaran. Dying with them is the dream of a Neo-Zeon founded on the blood rite of the Zabi clan. Since his introduction in episode 9, we saw Glemi change and grow in much the same way that a fungus grows larger and grosser with time. Rakan was rarely on screen before his final act, but his appearance in the sky over Dublin said everything about him that needed to be said. Now that they have died, the time has come for us to reckon, finally, with who these two men were, the lives they led, and the legacy they leave behind. Ha! Get wrecked! They f***ed around and they found out. Next time on episode 3.45, Into the Wilderness. We cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 47 and... The Shangri-La Spirit. With your power, you could save the Earth! But I don't want to save the Earth. I want to fight meaningless mobile suit battles. Hey, this is just Zeta. Remind me, what does pride go with before? All dressed up and no one to kill. No wait, now it's first Gundam! It's only tragedy if it's from the Greece region of Earth, otherwise it's just sparkling misfortune. Oop, now it's Zeta again. Ghost shield, ghost guidance system, ghost beams. Please stop making ghost-powered robots. And... Is this it? Is that the end? You will see the battlefield of new types. Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, 
at gundampodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Now that Glemmy Toto has been defeated, Haman and Judo should be able to peacefully work out their differences. Maybe she'll retire from tyranny and join the Gundam team's junk hauling company. Maybe Bicha could take a turn as Tyrant of Axis. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. Straight shot. One take. No flubs. (laughs) All right. (laughs) No, no. Let's do the podcast, not let's do crying. And then I have you saying something like, play fascist games, win fascist prizes, you pieces of... You were doing pretty good until you got to Maria, and then the notes were all wrong. I have no way of knowing if that's (laughs) true or not. I suppose I want to just say good riddance. Sorry, my brain doesn't want to brain. I don't think that will work in this context, but it is good. Do I have to do that again? I'm just wondering what they're doing out there. Yeah, I don't know. I do want to note that apparently sunglasses are genetic in the Daikun family. All right, well... Uh, Do you have anything more to say about Char, Sela, Bright? Other than the fact that there's no good explanation for Sela and Lena being on the moon, except that they're needed there to set up either the last episode or some future events. That sounds like they're dragging one of the metal pieces away. You want to take a break? Uh, I'm sort of mid-thought right yeah, now is the problem, yeah. and I don't want to lose it. Okay. Keep waiting for... I just want to finish a sentence! <laughs> it is not permitted to finish a sentence. <laughs> I didn't phrase that differently. Like... I did like how casually Judo wastes Rakan. Just it's... like... Takes yeah. him apart. Also, the irony of Rakan being like, but the pilot is a child. It's like, dude, you fight alongside Kudu too. Who do there's you think of, you are? There's a lot of children in this game, yeah. Well, and we get a little bit of Itano Circus uh, when mm-hmm. Judo fires off missiles at Rakan, which is not super common yet. I feel like it's going to get to the point where it's in every mobile suit fight, but <laughs> <laughs> it's still pretty rare. What is the title referring to, do you think? In this episode? Yeah. What was this Vibrations. One? Vibrations? That's a good question. Right? Just like, you know, it's a vibe. Just vibes. It's, vibes. it's, it's a conflict of vibes. We're all just vibing. Mm-hmm.